We're in the series on the letter to the Romans, and we're going to uh, share a, a quick uh, message entitled, All Children of Abraham. We are in now chapter four, and so I'd like to read that for you. It is a decently short passage, but it is fairly lengthy, at least for uh, sharing in this particular context. Here we go, Romans chapter four. Now, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something else. But to one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David pronounces a blessing on those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Now, is this blessing then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? This is a big question. We say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteous. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? The order is going to be really important here. It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believed without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. Yes, that was a lot of circumcision in the passage. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Notice I highlighted that verse. That'll be key. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. For this reason, the promise depends on faith in order that it may rest on grace so that it may be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old, gee, thanks, Paul, <laughs> and the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. In the summer of 1954, there was a very well-known psychological experiment that took place at a place called Robber's Cave. 
It was a study on intergroup conflict and cooperation. And the psychologists who put this study together wanted to know how cooperation and conflict evolved and vice versa. The subjects that they had chosen for this study were randomly selected 12-year-old boys. They divided them into equal teams, and they named their teams. One team came up with the name of the Eagles. The other team came up with the name of Rattlers, Eagles and Rattlers. They went through several days of experiments, games, activities, etc., team building. But then on day four is when things got interesting because they learned to compete with one another. And at that particular stage of the experiments, through baseball, tug of war, and other kinds of activities, the groups began deriding the other in othering terms, such as outsiders, intruders, those boys at the other end of the camp. And each group began to grow impatient for a challenge. They began to use derogatory language. They even refused to socialize with the other group during down times of play. And the relationship between the two groups grew even further degraded over the course of the experience. At one particular point, growing violent, such as one group raiding the other and fist fights beginning to break out. So much so that the staff of the experiment was forced to shut down the interactions so as to avoid serious injury. Now, what was interesting about this particular experiment, experiment is that the boys did not necessarily have any awareness of what it is that they were doing. They just simply needed to be identified in a particular group with a particular title, a particular tribal identity for them to deride and to begin to hate the other. Even though at the very beginning of the experiment, they all came in at the same level as a random group of 12-year-old boys. Liliana Mason, in her book, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Becomes, Became Our Identity, writes about this experiment as a metaphor, an example, an analog to how we have become such divided folks. In explaining this particular experiment, she writes the following. By the start of the third week, the conflict had affected the boys' ability to judge objective reality. The boys at Robber's Cave needed nothing but isolation and competition to almost instantaneously consider the other team to be dirty bums, to hold negative stereotypes about them, to avoid social contact with them, and to overestimate their own group's abilities. In very basic ways, group identification and conflict change the way we think about ourselves and our opponents. Here's how I would summarize what we're going to cover today based upon that passage in Romans chapter 4 and the entire circumcision discussion that Paul makes about Abraham. Through the mere announcement of teams, we succumb to the human psychological weakness of being unable to connect with reality and therefore to connect with each other. We care more about our team winning than we do about the truth and we care more about the other team losing than we care about the truth. I thought that was appropriate for today's activities. <laughs> we shall close in prayer. <laughs> now, 
Why am I bringing this up? Because what Paul is doing in this passage is exactly what we've been talking about this entire time about Romans, is that Abraham, appealing back to who Abraham was, and trying to figure out the order, the blessing, circumcision, circumcision, blessing, righteousness, at what particular point in time did this come about? Paul is making a very vociferous argument. Abraham had nothing to do with the righteousness that was credited to him in regards to Abraham's obedience to things like the law, things like being a tribal identity. The narrative anchor of a- is in Abraham is a reminder and an argument that Paul is making for a God who has consistently evaluate- evaluated righteousness, not on the basis of tribal identity, but on the basis of core behavioral values. This is going to be the central point. Again, I have a very short period of time, so that's why we're going fast. Now, to understand why Abraham is set up as this example, you have to know some ancient stories that have been told about Abraham. They still exist today. And the character of who Abraham is is part of the backdrop of what Paul is appealing to. One of those famous stories is in the Talmud in Genesis Rabbah in chapter 38. There's a story about him going to his father's house or living in his father's house that's full of idols. And the story goes that these idols are all around. And Abraham is one of the very few, if not only, people who recognizes, wait a second, my father's house is full of idols. And these idols are nothing but man-made, human-made, handmade stone images This doesn't make any sense to worship stone images. It doesn't make any sense to worship things that were created by hand. And so let me give my father a lesson and those around me a lesson. So the story goes, Abram arose and took a club in his hand, shattered all the idols, and placed the club in the hand of the largest idol among them. When his father came, he said, who did this to them? It's brilliant. He said to him, I will not lie to you. Yes, you will. You're you're about to lie, Abram, so I don't know why you're saying that. I will not lie to you. This one idol who's holding the club, who is standing among them, got up and took the club and shattered all the rest. So this big idol holding the hammer is the guy who smashed all the other idols. Abram's father said to him, what? Are you mocking me? Are they sentient at all? And Abram said to his father, Do your ears not hear what your mouth is saying? What a brilliant illustration and story to describe. Here's the key thing, the righteousness of Abraham in a city. Now, this story goes on about how Abram's father felt like he was just stuck. It was the culture, etc. But Abram had an awareness that these are nothing but false idols. And he performs this particular act to describe and to illustrate just how Lame, stupid, idiotic, nonsensical it is to worship idols by giving one of the idols a hammer and saying, he did it. And of course, the answer is, of course he didn't do it. That's the point. In a second story in the book of Jubilees, which is an apocryphal book, it's very similar, except instead of hammer, there's fire. And he said, what help and profit do we have from those idols which you worship before which you bow yourself? For there is no spirit in them, for they are dumb forms. I love it. (laughs) I like it when Abraham talks like me. They're dumb and a misleading of the heart. Do not worship them. Worship instead the God of heaven who causes the rain and the dew to fall on the land, who does everything upon the land and has created everything by his speaking. All life is before his face. His father said to Abraham, I know it, son, but what can I do with the people who have made me to serve before them? 
If I tell the truth, they will kill me. Keep silent, or they will kill you. And in the 60th year of the life of Abraham, he rose by night and burned the house of the idols. And he burned all that was in the house, and no one knew it. His brother, Terah, actually dies in that fire, according to the story. Now, what am I sharing? Again, in very, very brief terms, the question is, why does Paul make such a big deal about Abraham here in chapter 4, when we've already talked about chapters 1 and chapter 16, and all the other things that we've talked about in Romans, considering that we just don't care about your tribal identity, your ethnic identity. Those are not what are important. What's important is who God is and who we are in light of God. Why is Abraham being told? Because Abraham becomes the image in the picture that's connected with the history of the Jewish people to drive the point home. And so he even illustrates this by asking the question, what is it? that made Abraham righteous. Why do we look to Abraham as our father? What makes him so special? What makes him so high in the hierarchy of righteousness and of faith? Is it because he was circumcised? The answer is no. Paul's very, very clear about that. And throughout the rest of the writings, it's going to also be clear. Is it because he had children? No, no, he did I mean, that was the whole, he's old, remember? He's super old, that was the point there. Is it because he was obedient to Torah, to the scriptures, to the passages? No, they hadn't been written yet, so it's not about that. And is it because he was Jewish? No, he wasn't even Jewish. He was Aramean. So in, in light of all of this, Paul is making an argument. Thousands of years later, people are saying, being circumcised is really important for faith. Making sure that you have children is really important for faith. Listen, Following the Bible is really important for your faith, and if you don't follow the Bible, then maybe you're not really a fill-in-the-blank. And what's Paul doing here? He's saying, um, so you know Abraham, uh, the, the, that guy, uh, the father who had many sons and daughters, and many sons and daughters had father Abraham. Yeah. Do you remember that song? Yeah. Do you remember that guy that we sing about? He had none of this. None of it. And it was credited to him as righteousness because of just simply who he was. There was a natural, inborn connection with the divine and obedience to yod heh vav to the divine person of who God is. And that, the behavioral value, is what is credited to Abraham as righteousness. Not this stuff. That stuff doesn't matter. It's this that ultimately matters. So whenever you hear of somebody appealing to a religious identity marker to say, listen, you don't have that. You must not be spiritual enough. You must be wise enough. You must not be religious enough, etc." Remember Abraham. Abraham is the example, the model, our father, our ancestor, the progenitor, the pillar, the anchor of our faith. And he had none of that. What he had? was faithfulness. Here's that passage again from chapter 4. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law. 
but through the righteousness of faith. And we need to get there, that phrase, Danielle has already alluded to the rich depth of what righteousness of faith means, and there's other passages that are going to come that help explain that, but that's the point. That credit of righteousness didn't come through obedience to the law, didn't come through being circumcised, didn't come through having children, didn't come through any ethnic identity. Those are irrelevant. They came because of faithfulness. And because Abraham was faithful, that is what is credited to him as righteousness. I was reminded of a very popular t-shirt that made me laugh, but it has new meaning in this particular context. Of course, many Christians walk around with this t-shirt on, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And the idea behind that t-shirt is that something about me, my history, my identity, the way that I pray, the, how many times I go to church, etc. just tally up all the things that make me righteous. This is what makes me a favorite in Jesus' eyes. So that's what, that's what we do. But then I was reminded... What, as, what is actually going on here is a different t-shirt. It's this t-shirt. Jesus loves you, but then again, he loves everybody, which I always took as a snarky comment, which I thought was really hilarious. Jesus loves you, but then again, you know, he loves everybody. But in light of this particular passage, that is actually the correct t-shirt. Yes, he loves me, but the, the, the point is, it's everybody. It's not because I happen to have excellent attendance at church. It's not because I happen to have excellent memory of particular passages. It's not because I happen to have a particular religious marker. No, it's everybody is loved and credited as righteous if they follow in faithfulness, just like Abraham. These religious identity markers and ethnic markers do not matter. So if I were to map this on as a takeaway for us for today, for your consideration for us to think about and to consider. And this is going to cause some problems as virtually every talk at Spark does, okay? So something to wrestle with and to consider. If we were to change this story of what made Abraham righteous to the question of what makes a Christian righteous? What makes a Christian somebody who is deeply faithful? Well, there's a lot of identity things that we could possibly put down. There are things by which we say, yes, this is what makes a quote-unquote good Christian, somebody who is credited as a righteous Christian, somebody who is really doing it. And depending upon which religious circles you walk in, you will be thrown a whole bunch of these things and say, but are you this? But did you do this? But, but wait a second, uh, have you been filled with this, right? I mean, we do this as well. Humans have been the same forever. We put markers on. Are you an eagle? Are you a rattler? Going back to Liliana Mason. What are the things that identify you? And of course the answer is, there is no boasting. Paul's gonna say that explicitly in Romans. Is it baptism? Fantastic marker, but just like circumcision, baptism is not the thing that makes you righteous. Baptism is the symbol externally and a testimony to the thing that has already happened in your life. So it's not that you are baptized, and that's the key thing about circumcision. It doesn't mean being circumcised is bad. It just simply means that's not the means by which righteousness and faith come. Right belief, so here's a big one. No, no, it, no. The, the whole, that's the whole point. Is it being a Christian? Honestly, who cares about the title? Many of us in the current 
you know, last couple decades have been wrestling, do I even call myself that anymore because of the way the term has been used? So clearly that's not the thing. And then, of course, obedience to the New Testament, which I know, wait, Kevin, hey, that's a little, it's a little, that's a little over the edge. Too much, too far. But again, the whole point is, just like Abraham didn't have Torah, didn't have, quote unquote, the Old Testament, didn't have the Hebrew scriptures, and yet Abraham's faithfulness was credited to him as righteousness. Guess what? Same thing applies here. The obedience to even the New Testament doesn't apply to us either. What does? What is the thing that causes us to be righteous? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Righteousness and faithfulness. Emunah. And obedience to some core behavioral values. I don't know. Just like somebody I read in a book somewhere. And the followers of that somebody who didn't have all of those things together either, and yet created a movement that was very much commensurate, very much in line with ideas, with this idea. You do not have to have your religious stuff together. That's the point. That's not the point. The faithfulness of who Jesus is, the behavioral core values, This is what anchors us. The narrative anchor in Abraham is a reminder and argument for a God who has consistently evaluated righteousness not on the basis of tribal identity, but on the basis of core behavioral values. Does this sound familiar to anybody in the room? If you've ever asked the question, why Spark doesn't have a statement of faith, why we don't have certain standards that you need to meet in order to become a member or participant in our community, this is part of the reason why. And Paul makes that argument really, really stick by saying, you know that guy Abraham? He didn't either. And that's why in this place and in this time, Jews and Gentiles, those who do have Torah, those who don't, and let's expand it, Christians and non-Christians, those who do have the New Testament, those who don't, all are welcome to participate in this family. Because if faithfulness, if faithfulness is demonstrated, that is the marker, just like our father, Abraham. So we're going to shift to communion and our time at the table, which is an example of, uh, which is an example of that faithfulness, and every time we come to the table, we participate and partake of elements that are symbols and representations of this very Jesus who lived that faithfully. So when we participate and partake of those elements, we are reminding ourselves and living over once again that core commitment and that core faith. So as we come and as we sing, we're going to invite you to come and partake at the table. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, 
If you don't have the New Testament memorized, you are welcome at this table. If you are circumcised or uncircumcised, you are welcome at this table. If you have made a confession of faith or not, you are welcome at this table. If you have affirmed the Apostles' Creed or not affirmed the Apostles' Creed, you are welcome at this table. All are welcome. Please come as we sing.